Welcome to the Invest Like a Boss podcast. I'm Sam Marks. And I'm Johnny FD. We're self-made entrepreneurs who invest our own money and use modern technology to invest like a boss. Join us each week for exclusive interviews with our network of modern investors, business owners, and multimillionaires to discover new ways to invest our hard-earned cash. Hey everyone, this is Johnny and welcome to episode 24 of the Invest Like a Boss podcast. I'm back with my co-host Sam Marks and we have on Sam the Financial Samurai this week. Yeah, awesome guest and very happy. You know, it's somebody that I've been following for a bit and a lot of our listeners in the Boss Lounge have been chatting about Financial Samurai and a lot of his content. So we reached out to him and very good to have him agree to come on the show. <clears throat> yeah, I think it's going to be really cool to kind of hear his backstory because he writes a ton of great articles on FinancialSamurai.com about uh, wealth. And he, he he basically retired pretty young, right? Like 30, was it 34? Yeah, he's still a little bit active. You know, I don't think anyone can truly retire in their early 30s. It's, uh, there's a lot of, <laughs> there's a big dark side to that. But, um, but yeah, at least in a financial sense, yeah, he was retired by 34 from my understanding. Yeah, and I, I know he, he wrote a book about uh, basically engineering your layoff. Uh, you guys can check that out, but he's, I'm sure he'll talk a little bit about it. But I think it's cool. I mean, I, I honestly personally wouldn't want to retire in my 30s anyways. I think there's there's too much enjoyment out of life to just stop working. Um, mm-hmm. But the fact that he stopped working his corporate job and moved on to things he actually enjoys doing, like his his like his blog and uh, and investing, I think that is the dream of most people. Yeah, I agree with d- definitely ditto that. Um, and it's kind of a situation that I've been playing around with as well. After you know, after we sold the business and trying to do nothing for a while. And it's you there's too much of a void. You know, you have to get back into doing something that you're passionate about, whether it's just playing tennis or it's building a business or helping people. Uh, And I think so. I think Sam from Financial Samurai is one of the best best people out there to talk about it. And I also think this is an awesome episode to follow yours up because your episode has been been a smashing hit. And I really think we should do more of these, you know, how people got from kind of zero to one stories, because, of course, investing is awesome. We love investing and all of these stories end up going into investing. But a lot of people are interested in how, you know, how did you get your start to put you in a position of being able to invest full time? Yeah, definitely makes sense. Uh, If you guys aren't part of the Boss Lounge yet, stay tuned to the end of the episode and we'll talk about how you can join and how you can recommend guests and uh, different topics that we're going to come up with. So before we get started, uh, where in the world are you, Sam? Oh, I'm in London. I was in... Yeah, I'm in London. I'm I'm on a short stopover back to the U.S. It's been well. Every time we talk, you know, uh, we're some place different. But this has been a, the end of about a two and a half month road trip through Europe. Part of that was with you early on in the east, uh, the eastern countries. The far eastern country, should we say? Mm-hmm. And uh, it's just ending now, so now I'm I'm flying back to the states for a bit. I'm gonna hang out in the southeast, uh, chill with my dog, my actual dog, my parents, and uh, maybe do a little sailing in the Caribbean. I like that. It sounds fun. Uh, I how about you? I'm in Chiang Mai right now for another week exactly, and I'm going to be in uh, Los Angeles for a while, visiting some friends and family, and then heading over to Hawaii. So next Dude, that's an awesome you, trip. Yeah, uh, next time I talk to you, I might be on the islands again. So I'm excited. Well, we're gonna have to. Yeah, we're gonna have to. We're definitely gonna have to record while you're on the islands and dude while you're there do me a favor like look look around hawaii quite a bit because i just keep hearing amazing things about hawaii i think it's gonna be too expensive uh but take a look and like you know get a full full feel for it okay we'll do so without further ado 
Let's welcome onto the show Sam Dogan from Financial Samurai. Everybody, welcome back. This is your co-host Sam Marks, and I'm joined today with someone that I've personally been looking forward to having on the show for a long time. It's Sam from Financial Samurai and the author of How to Engineer Your Layoff, which is a book about helping people to negotiate their severance packages to escape the rat race. Sam, thanks for coming and joining us, man. Hey, thanks a lot for having me. Yeah, so I, I guess I can't say coming over here and joining us because you're actually in in uh, San Francisco. Yeah, good old San Francisco. Probably, uh, I think, the most undervalued city, I think, in the world in terms of real estate. And everybody is always shocked to hear that. But uh, I've been everywhere. And San Francisco, with all that's going on, I think is the place to be. That's interesting because everything, yeah, like I've, everything I've ever heard about it was it's a real estate bubble that's driven by the Silicon Valley bubble and tech bubble. And, you know, every time I've been out there looking at real estate prices, it's just like, oh my gosh, like who can afford to live out here? But that's a it's an interesting perspective that you have about the real estate prices. Well, it's interesting because I was thinking about moving to Hawaii, uh, where my father's side of the family is from back in 2014. Mm-hmm. And I was looking at these, you know, my ideal place would be like a home with a ocean view and, you know, like nice lanai where you can sit out and type and drink a Mai Tai or whatever. And I was looking at these homes and they all cost like one and a half plus million dollars and you had to fix it up and spend a couple hundred thousand dollars more. Mm-hmm. And and I was just thinking to myself, wow, that is almost like San Francisco. But the big difference is, is that unless you're a doctor or a lawyer or a dentist or something, it's really hard to make any money in Hawaii, mm-hmm. like more than maybe 30 to 30 to 50,000 a year. But in San Francisco, if you just go on like angellist.co or just ask your friends or go to a coffee shop, it's literally as if everybody is making six figures, whether as a full-time employee or as a consultant. So I just decided, you know what, I'm going to go buy my own uh, view home in San Francisco in 2014 and just stay for another 14, you know, another 10 to 20 years or whatever, because there's so much opportunity here. Wow. So who's living in, in Hawaii? It just must be people who you know, come into a lot of money one way or another, but obviously people aren't earning a living there. Well, that's the thing. It's you either are a professional you know, doctor or whatever, or you import your money. You've made your money elsewhere, mm-hmm. and then you go to Hawaii. So if you think about like Larry Ellison, he bought the island of, I think, Lanai. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, Mark Zuckerberg bought, you know, 50 or maybe it's 500 acres on the big island. There's just a lot of money that goes to Hawaii to retire and just to have their second homes, which makes it unfortunately unaffordable for the local people. Mm -hmm. And that's what you're kind of seeing in places like uh, Vancouver, for example. I mean, I can't think of one big company in Vancouver that would be driving their real estate market at a 1.3 to 4 million median home price. Mm -hmm. But I can name tons and tons of companies in San Francisco, Bay Area, like Google, Facebook, Apple, whatever, that would justify uh, these prices a little bit better than in Vancouver, for example. Yeah. So Johnny's out in Hawaii right now for a dropshipping conference, either this week or next week. And I haven't been out there, but I'm, I'm intrigued to go because everybody keeps talking about it as like if they could live anywhere in the world and it didn't matter about money for the rest of their life. Yeah. There's a lot of people that would, would put Hawaii down as number one. Yeah, I mean, Hawaii is awesome. You know, digital nomad lifestyle. I like it. I think it's great. And if you can live in Hawaii... Um, it's got everything I think that perhaps Thailand does, mm-hmm. you know, the weather, the beaches, the lifestyle, but it's also got like, you know, you're still part of America, mm-hmm. Americana, the sports, the football, basketball, whatever, you know, the political debates, I don't know. <laughs> uh, and it's a good lifestyle. It's, it's, 
it's really similar, but I think obviously the Thai food is much better in Thailand. Oh so. uh, yeah, yeah, can't beat that for sure. Um, been missing that for about six months now, so looking forward to getting back at some point soon. And I guess with Hawaii, also you have you have a lot quicker access to Asia, and you also have quicker as- uh, access to mainland U.S. or Vancouver yeah. or wherever. So yeah. it's a pretty sweet location. Yeah. Pretty good. Uh, you can start your day early, end early, and yeah, it's pretty central, and you have a lot of direct flights, right? Mm-hmm. So I think. If I were to choose, I would say Hawaii is the number one place for digital nomads. <laughs> Dang, that's a big statement. I like it. So if you could have, getting a little off track here, but I'm really interested in your opinion on this. If you could have one house as your primary residence yeah. and two vacation houses that you weren't going to rent them, so you couldn't monetize them. They would just be straight up, I'm going to vacation at each one of these for maybe a month, a year. Where would you Where would you have yeah. the three? So I'd be central in San Francisco because I think it's the best balance of lifestyle and opportunity. Then I'd have one house in one of the islands in Hawaii. And then I'd have like a pied-a-terre in Manhattan because I think Manhattan for six months of the year is the best place on earth. Dang, your city boy. So much, yeah. so much buzz. Yeah, I mean, it's just, I mean, Hawaii can be like on the ocean front, on the North Shore where it's really chill. Mm-hmm. But San Francisco and Manhattan, I, th- I love it. It's just, there's so much action going on that you'll just never get bored. You know, one of the biggest fears in early retirement is just, you know, kind of getting bored because all mm-hmm. your friends are working and nobody can go and play with you. But there's tons of people to play with and hang out with in New York and San Francisco. Yeah, I just spent uh, about a month in Budapest and, you know, the grass is just always greener. After after the month in Budapest, I was like, man, I just want to get outside the city. And we went and did a, a kind of a month-long road trip through the Alps and Austria, just staying in small small villages all mm-hmm. along the way. And I was mm-hmm. so ready to get back to the city. I felt like I was just spun off and exiled from humanity and was like outcast to these cities. And you really, yeah. you know, you really forget about the need to be able to, to connect with people and especially have intelligent conversations after, you know, a month of just being on the road and sipping coffee on the countryside. It's, it's, um, it seems great when you're in the city, but if you do it for too long, I feel like the human need to just get back and connect is is really really strong. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So we had uh, so during the the road trip, actually, I had my girlfriend reading a bunch of your blogs out to me as, as entertainment on the road and learning instead of having a typical audiobook on. And with English being her second language, she wanted to also thank you very much for learning some new business vocabulary. And, uh, oh, okay, cool. Yeah, it was great. And um, um, you know, I think what's really inspiring about your story and the reason I love it so much, the reason that a lot of our listeners who are familiar with your blog and your story love it so much is that it's realistic and it's it's not a get rich quick scheme. It's much more about living responsibly, making smart decisions, and yes, of course, accumulating wealth for an early retirement, but taking practical steps on the way to get there. So there's tons of value bombs you could hit us with. I would really like to kind of focus a little bit on your actual story uh, and kind of the beginnings of like how you got started and of course, building up to how you were able to retire by the age 34. Yeah. So I think the biggest irony is that life is too good in the States. Uh, I grew up in I grew up in Asia, Zambia, Philippines, Malaysia, Taiwan, and life was not as good. And I kind of recognized that as a kid because I'd have to come back to the States for vacation and visit relatives. And there's like this clear compare and contrast of not so good life and really good life in the United States. Mm-hmm. And so I had this perspective that I always carried with me until adulthood. And when I first started working, it was a really tough job. Um, it was at Goldman Sachs in New York City. And I didn't know how I was able to get that job. I basically got on a bus one day at 6 a.m. from my school 
to go to a career fair, and because I was the only one to get on that damn bus at 6 a.m., the driver said, hey, let's let's return this bus, and I'll take you up in a town car myself. And I said, okay, that sounds good. And I was at this career fair, and I got this job after 50-50 interviews um, at the world headquarters. And what happened was I really didn't like the job. I was excited I had a job. I was excited I worked at the firm. But I had to get in at 5.30 a.m. every morning. And many times I would, I would work until like 8 or 9 p.m. And that's like brutal 13, 14-hour mm -hmm. days every single day. And then the weekends I'd have to come in because I didn't know crap, right? Mm -hmm. And I was just a cost center. I was a cost center to the firm, and I had to prove myself that I was worthy of being an employee. And so because it was a tough environment, with tough working hours, I told myself literally in the first I think one month, I was like, there's no way I'm going to survive this business yeah. beyond, I don't know, 30 years old. I mean, if I could survive five years, I'd be lucky. So I told myself right then and there before um, December 1999, um, I need to save as much as possible and live as frugally as possible uh, because I won't be able to survive. You survive, so survive in, like a, in a physical sense or just st stick around for yeah, I mean, job? Yeah, well, stick around and also a physical sense. I mean, yeah. I remember, you know, I was like a trim, you know, I'm 5'10", I was like 155, I was trim, I played a lot of tennis. And I remember after six months, I was like 170, and yeah. I was like, you know, a little pudgy. And then I was like, I was getting this like plantar fasciitis in my foot. Yeah. And then I had allergies and like my whole health was going downhill. And I was just, like no there's there's no way i can make it mm -hmm. for the long term and so that was when i was just like okay locked down save live in live in a studio with my buddy i don't give a crap whoever comes over you know i'm working anyway so who cares and i'm poor so let's let's do this so that one day i might be free and the only saving grace for me was uh in 2001 I, my vp got a call from a headhunter mm -hmm. and they asked her whether she wanted to move to a different firm in san francisco and she said no because her mother was in manhattan and she says well you know why don't you talk to my colleague here who actually goes out to san francisco once a month to cover clients and i picked up the phone and i was like oh sounds good san francisco closer to hawaii more balanced lifestyle i actually don't know anybody in san francisco why not give it a go Mm -hmm. And so I moved out to San Francisco in 2001 with a raise and a promotion, but I kept my lifestyle like a college student. Mm -hmm. um, I lived at the e this dump at the edge of Chinatown with this crazy person for like the first six months and then another person. And, uh, you know, we'd always be getting woken up by 4 a.m., 5 a.m., garbage, garbage <laughs> guys, you know, and, and whoever else, because we were like living in this massive complex yeah. that I, it seemed like it was for lower-income folks, which is fine. And uh, just kind of kept that discipline until one day I said, uh, I think I need to move on. And that one day was really in 2009 when the financial crisis uh, happened. Yeah. And so what, how, uh, what, what age were you when you were when you were living the uh, the frugal lifestyle outside of Chinatown? Oh, so 22 to 26. Um, so, you know, it's basically the frugal lifestyle started, yeah, right out of college until while I was in Chinatown. And then, and then basically I was like, there was a point where I, I didn't want to like rent so it's such a crappy place anymore. <laughs> and I was paying about $1,800 a month in rent split with another person. And I told myself, if I'm going to, well, I don't want to rent. I don't want to pay more than $2,000 in rent. Mm -hmm. So instead, I finally bought a place um, in 2003 when I was, when I just turned 26. And was the real estate market still, still like suppressed from the, from 2001 when you bought that no, house? No, the irony is, is that, uh, so the dot-com bubble burst in 2000. 
And so the money from stocks and internet companies actually flowed into real assets, mm-hmm. i.e. Uh, real estate. Mm. And interest, interest rates started going down. So actually back then, the real estate market was still quite strong. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was never, San Francisco was never cheap. But I remember just kind of parlaying um, a good investment I made in a dot-com company. <laughs> wait, wait, no wait. That, that, that doesn't sound right. <laughs> you just talked about the dot-com bust and you ended up making a good investment yeah. in it. Was that a was it a private well, got, investment or? No, it was just a. I, I bought this this funny company called DCSY, mm-hmm. and it was like a Chinese Chinese internet company that I had. It was kind of like a China Yahoo, mm-hmm. and all it had on its homepage was like a dial pad. <laughs> but it was like a. It was kind of like a. It was a penny penny stock. It was like three dollars a share, and I was like, oh, this sounds interesting. Let me buy some, right? So I bought three three thousand dollars worth, and then you know what you do is you say, "Oh, hey, buddy, I bought this. What do you think?" Mm-hmm. And they'll be like, oh, "Okay, that sounds pretty good." And then pretty soon, everybody at my desk and on the street were like, "What is this stock? This Chinese internet stock back in 2000. Mm-hmm. And it went from like three dollars a share to one hundred fifty dollars a share. Dang, that's uh, some serious yeah, return. It, yeah, it actually, it went to like one hundred eighty dollars a share. So three thousand dollars went to about one hundred eighty thousand dollars. All right, so it, 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 is it is a it is a get rich quick scheme. It's a whole topic if you want to get into it, but yeah. active versus passive, mm-hmm. you know, you can't really get rich if every all your investments are passive. Yeah. So a portion of your money, you can go try to bargain hunt and find some unicorns. Yeah. So you were able to start saving money while you're out in California just through the, the frugality and, and also you know, you're spending $2,000 a month on rent. Like I've been out of the US for like six years now. And that, that to me is just unheard of, right? Because you can even in Thailand or, uh, you know, down in Central America or a lot of places like the digital nomads hang out, you can rent the nicest place in the city for, you know, 1200 bucks a month. And most people are living on, uh, you know, out of an apartment that's $500 a month and is, is, is really, really nice by, you know, by even by US standards. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's expensive, but I was paying eighteen hundred, but I was dividing it by two, so it was only nine hundred. Yeah, right. but uh, you know the income was pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so got lucky, but I was still really frugal, and mm-hmm. I knew that that funny money wouldn't last. Mm-hmm. So I've always had a mindset working in equities is to convert any good fortune, any funny money you make in the stock market that's totally just numbers and paper wealth into real assets. Mm-hmm. So that's what I did in 2003 when I was when I had just turned 26. I remember I turned 26 June 15 and I closed like the very next day. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting because by by that time I was kind of getting totally disillusioned by working, making money. It was probably like a quarter life crisis. You know, I'd come out to San Francisco, um, avoided like getting my head chopped off because of the many rounds of layoffs that ensued after I left yeah. and then after 9-11, right? Oh, yeah. And then I felt, I was like, oh, man, life sucks in the sense that what's the point of life? People mm-hmm. are dying, 9-11, money is just a means to an end, and the idea of trying to make more money just didn't seem really appealing uh-huh. anymore. But uh, being able to buy that property in 2003 gave me a huge catalyst to get back into the saddle because there was a huge mortgage that came with that property. Sure. So you took your and then so, you yeah. took your earnings from that stock sale, which was let's just say ballpark one hundred and fifty thousand, and used that as a down yeah. payment for a property in San Francisco. Right. So then, uh, yeah, the property was like five hundred eighty thousand. Mm-hmm. I put like twenty twenty five percent down, and then suddenly I was like, oh, 
I got this big mortgage. I better not get fired. <laughs> I better start working hard again. <laughs> right. So then it's at that point you're still yeah. you're still with that job. I'm still with that job, and I ended up with uh, the new job for 11 years until 2012. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, from t- 2001 to 2012. But, you know, so I was disillusioned as a 26, 25, 26-year-old, and then I became disillusioned again as a uh, 32-year-old, mm-hmm. a 31, 32-year-old, because the financial crisis happened. Um, you know, I thought I was doing everything right. I was aggressively saving. I wasn't buying crazy things. I was investing. I had a great proper asset allocation model. And then I still lost, like, you know, 35% of my net worth that took 9, 10 years to build in a matter of 6 months to 12 months. And when you say you lost your net wealth, that was net worth. Was that also included in in the decrease in your property value that you you then owned, but had a mortgage on? Yeah, property values, um, stocks, even bonds. Mm-hmm. Then yeah, I mean, it was it was kind of like a come to Jesus moment. You're like, wow, I thought I did everything right, but I still got crushed. Right. And if I'm getting crushed, other people are getting crushed, and you know, I could get fired because there was already like six, seven rounds of layoffs. Mm-hmm. Uh, by then and at my firm and probably every every firm in finance and i thought um hey why not start a site to get some therapy you know some mm-hmm. people smoke some people drink some people do much worse i was like well i like to write maybe i can get some therapy by writing out my thoughts and feelings about making sense of all this chaos mm-hmm. and maybe other people would be able to relate and so i started financial samurai in 2009 and a lot of people related with a lot of the things I was, I was saying and a lot of people had fear and a lot of people were just, they just didn't know what to do. Mm-hmm. And I think together kind of grew out of that recession and grew out of that fear um, to empower ourselves and own our financial independence. Yeah. And, and um, it's hard to remember, but in 2008, I mean, people didn't know where the bottom was. People were thinking this is Armageddon. And, and, you know, a lot of people today still think that it was close to being really like it was really bad but you know they said it could have gotten so much worse right and a lot of people we've had on this podcast that was that was the the turning point in in their their life or at least in the way that they thought about money and and wealth and investing um and the so when you started the blog like you said it was just for therapy did it just start off as you know like a blog a week or or is it more than that uh i mean i could write all day every day Mm -hmm. so but i but I also had a day job. So basically I was at maybe three times a week, three to four times a week. Mm-hmm. And there were just five to 500 to 800 word entries and my thoughts on money, on life and relationships and happiness, really. Mm-hmm. And what I discovered after writing pretty methodically three to four times a week for two years was that it was uh, it actually had some potential. Like I remember my dad telling me in 2006, he was like, hey, you should start a site because you could actually make some money and you enjoy writing. Because mm-hmm. he was telling me about Google AdSense and all that. And <laughs> I it, said, oh, I don't know how to start. Yeah. It's, it's, it's usually the kids that tell their parents about that, but you had your dad telling you about it. That's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I had my dad telling me about this, and and he's totally not tech savvy or nothing. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was like, ah, that sounds great, but I'm too busy. I just finished business school Mm part-time at Cal, and you know, I was working full-time and going to business school part-time, so I was already getting my ass kicked already, and I was like, I don't want to create something else to do. I just wanted to focus and leverage my education to do the best I could do at work. And um, so if I started then, I think I would have been much better or bigger and better maybe, but um, better late than never, as they say. And I remember in, in like October of 2011, this is about two years after I started Financial Samurai. Mm-hmm. And while I was still working, I was sitting at the top of the crater in Santorini, Greece. 
Yeah, dude, that's and, one, one of my favorite spots in the world. Oh, so amazing, right? And mm-hmm. it was my first time, I rode the donkey up, all that fun stuff, and it was like we were walking around for three hours, and I was and I was like, you know, I'm going to just get a Mykonos beer, like this mm-hmm. seven-year-old Mykonos beer at the top of the crater and overlook the crater. And I was pumped because there was Wi-Fi back then, and I had my iPhone. And then in my inbox was this guy from London who I'd been advertising with, or who's been working with me on advertising on Financial Samurai. And he's like, uh, hey, uh, I would like to advertise this, this banner. Do you mind uh, if I do so for like 1200 bucks? And at that time, I was like, oh, yeah, that's a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And I was like, sure, why not? Send me the code, and I'll put it up via my iPhone, and here's my PayPal. So I did all that in about 30 minutes and he like sent over the 1200 instantly. And I was like, yeah, this is amazing. <laughs> and I was like telling the waiter, I was like, oh, give me another Mykonos beer, buddy. You know? <laughs> and it was then that I realized, oh man, maybe I could actually do something else after finance and actually, you know, have a livable income stream if I actually left. Yeah. Is there, so was that was there, when I started steaming. Was there, was there anything to justify that? like that initial ad placement or was it just like, Hey, I, w- I have this ad. I'll give you $1,200 to place it. Or was he like tying that into some type of, you know, traffic metrics or anything? Well, so back then in 2011, you know, there was Google page rank mm-hmm. and like page authority and all that. And now nobody cares or nobody knows what their page rank mm-hmm. is. Literally. I have no idea what mine is, but mm-hmm. back then it was really important. So I remember finance summer, I had a page rank of five, uh, which is pretty good. Yeah. And so like, Oh, I want to place this ad with a link back to my side. Got and it. I'm going to get 40. Right. Yeah. And back then I'm like, okay, sounds good. Who cares? It's my side. I'll do whatever I want. Mm-hmm. And you know, lo and behold, Google ended up, uh, coming down on site with such type of advertising. Mm-hmm. They never came down on my site because I probably just, just didn't do it that often. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had a page rank of five and so many advertisers wanted to to advertise because of that page rank. Nice. And so, it was, yeah, it was, it was easy money. And I was, yeah, I was like, wow, there is light at the end of the tunnel. There's, there's a new chapter. Yeah, so so that was your aha moment. What a better place to, to have an aha moment is in Santorini. If anyone hasn't been to Santorini, you want to be inspired, go there this next coming summer. I probably wouldn't go in the winter, but August, you will not be disappointed. So what so oh, what happened af- what happened after that like in terms of you know quitting your job how did that how did that go and and uh, what was the, yeah. the the emotional feeling of doing that So you know in 2011 uh, I was a executive director at a large financial firm and executive director is actually one up from a vice president so that's mm-hmm. totally opposite in tech So in other words my income was very good and my biggest fear was what kind of idiot at age 33, 34 would leave a multiple six figure income day job mm-hmm. to go make, you know, less than 50,000 a year on his website, right? Like that is, that's like being, you know, petulant, like not being patient enough to see, you know, see the plants bloom after you plant that seed, right? Because mm-hmm. I was, you know, I was 13 years into the, you know, 11, 12, 13 years into the business. And, you know, most people work for like 20 to 40 years. But I just felt that. Because of the downturn, you know, people who worked in finance became public enemy number one. Right. Like, regardless if I was working in the international equities business and I had nothing to do with you not paying your mortgage or whatever bank giving you some crazy terms on your interest rate that suddenly started going up after your term was over. Mm-hmm. You know, I had nothing to do with that. But um, Main Street, you know, painted Wall Street as, you know, all evil. So that one, that didn't feel really good because, um, you know, I asked my friends and I asked my parents, am I an evil person? And they say, I think you're okay. So <laughs> I was kind of confused. Mm-hmm. And then two, the pay um, started to decline structurally. 
So it didn't matter whether you were like a top three revenue generator, you had to subsidize other departments that were loss making or in trouble. Mm -hmm. And I understood that because the whole financial services industry and many other industries were in trouble. You had to be there as a team together. But it just didn't feel good, right? You just, all, all, I think most of us in the digital nomad community or entrepreneurs, all we ever want is to have a correlation with effort and performance and reward. Mm. And that wasn't happening anymore. It was like I was going to work in a large organization with only 2% or 3% pay raises or mm-hmm. no raises, no matter how, how well you did, right? Mm-hmm. So those are the two things um, that was making me think, huh. And then, of course, once I had the aha moment in Santorini, I was like, oh, okay, well, there's this other thing. And I knew that um, living in San Francisco, especially, if I didn't make the move to do something entrepreneurial, I would forever regret it <laughs> when I was like 70 years old looking back. Mm-hmm. And the more you make and the more entrenched you are at your job, you know, the harder it is to break free. So I, I decided then in Santa Rini, I had to move on, but I wanted to do it in a financially wise way. And that financially wise way was being able to negotiate a severance after 11 years of employment with one firm. Because if I had quit, I wouldn't get a severance. I wouldn't get three years of deferred cash and stock compensation. And I wouldn't get this seven year vesting period for this partner investment we made during the financial crisis, mm-hmm. where a portion of our bonus was used to buy these toxic assets, as the media like to call them, basically mortgage-backed securities and all that around the world. Mm-hmm. I would lose all of that. And that would be multiple hundreds of thousands of dollars of income lost. So I told myself, if I was able to negotiate a severance to get laid up and get all of that different compensation, I would take the move. I would make the move. And that's exactly what I did in March 2012. So for all the listeners, Sam literally wrote the book on this. So I don't know if we can we can touch on the entire story of that because it's an entire story of itself. So I would just say, read the book if you're interested in more of this story. But Sam, maybe give us just like the, the 20 second breakdown of it. Yeah. So I want, I want everybody to know, everybody who has a day job to know that you are more powerful as an employee than you think. Don't think about your boss and HR and legal as, you know, Goliath, right? Think about them as equals where they just want what's best for themselves and for the company. And to make, uh, you know, to, to have a negotiation about a severance, you have to provide value. Um, in my case, I had been there for 11 years. Um, I knew all the clients and I was able to hire someone to replace me. I basically hired someone to replace me and to introduce them to all my clients so that the revenue wouldn't drop as much as if I had just said, see you guys later. So there's always a benefit to being able to negotiate a severance. You just have to find out what that benefit is from your employer's point of view and always know that if you quit, you get nothing. But if you get laid off, you get so much more. So never quit, get laid. (laughs) I like it. So read the book if you want the full story. Uh, I certainly will be after this. And so big move, man. You you quit your job. You go full time on the blog. What's like? What's the early days of that like? What's the feeling? Um, the feeling was like, oh my god, what did I do? Did I make the right move financially? Am I going to be an idiot? People are going to think I'm just a failure because again, all I all I my biggest fear was I would try hard and nothing would happen. Mm -hmm. But I tried hard and the correlation with effort was really, really solid. So I was able to write more. I was able to write more in-depth articles. I was able to communicate my thoughts better and connect with thought leaders um, more frequently. Mm -hmm. And what happens is, you know, when you burn your boat, you know, there's only one way to go, right? You 
you either going to die and drown and die, or you're going to swim to the other island and survive. Right. And so I, I burned my boat, but really I had a really nice luxury life jacket on the side because I had the severance that provided me for about five, six years of living expenses. Nice. So I told myself, I'm going to try to replicate my day job income before my severance runs out. And so that's what I've been trying to do. Dang, that's so awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. Six years of severance. I mean, that's uh, that gives you gives you a nice little cushion. So did you at that point start doing more active investing? So you obviously were making starting to make money off, off financial samurai and your material. Did you start investing into other things, whether active or, or passive? So what, what happened with my financial situation then was um, I had built a passive income stream worth about $80,000 gross uh, a year by 2012. So I knew that if Financial Samurai failed, I'd at least have $80,000 a year to live off, which is enough to live a decent lifestyle yeah. for, for one person in San Francisco. Right. What was, because what, my mortgage what, what was locked down and everything. Gotcha. What was that, that income stream, if you don't mind sharing? Yeah. So the income stream was uh, from my rental property that I bought in 2003 mm, okay. uh, that I talked about that gave me that catalyst. Um, you know, back then it was renting out for like 3,600 a month. Mm-hmm. Um, now it's renting for about 4,200 a month. It is renting for 4,200 a month. Mm-hmm. Uh, other income streams include dividend income as well as CD interest income. I had put a lot of my money. I've always been putting about 30% of all disposable income into risk-free assets mm-hmm. just because it's so volatile in, in stock market finance. I mean, since 1999, there's like these massive corrections that just crush people, right? So I thought it was prudent to continuously invest about 30% of my disposable income in CDs. Mm-hmm. So I had a lot of CDs that were paying about 4% interest a year guaranteed. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you know, dividend income and and just some side hustles. Yeah. So so 80000 was like, okay, worst case, 80000 And then Financial Samurai, I would think like worst case, it could make like 30, 40 grand, like worst case. Mm-hmm because it had been doing well already. So then I was like, okay, worst case, 100 to 120 grand, not bad. Let's let's give it a go. Yeah, I mean, with 120 grand, you can always move to, you know, 99.9% of desirable places in the world and still still be doing just fine. Uh, and if you want to move to Northern Thailand, you can be a king or any, anywhere in yeah, Southeast exactly. Asia. So so yeah, sitting, sitting really pretty. Yeah, the you know, and the eighty grand took. Um, let's see, I started in two thousand, so yeah, it took twelve years to generate. Mm-hmm. But I was, but as you recall, like from month one of getting my ass kicked at work, mm-hmm. I was determined, like hell, to save and invest everything I made or as much as I could make. You know, so it was like fifty to eighty percent of my after tax income. Every single, uh, all of that money was going to investing and saving because mm-hmm. I was determined. And I and I, I just knew myself that I couldn't last. I would be like, you know, by the time I was forty, I'd probably be, you know, go from one hundred fifty five pounds to maybe two twenty five, and just be like terribly miserable and unhappy. <laughs> as as the way the, as the way of the American corporate worker. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I just could see it, and I just saw it through my colleagues, mm-hmm. and you know, my senior colleagues were wealthy, and I don't, I didn't see a lot more happiness. You know, yeah. I actually just saw a lot more st- stress and you know, wealthy people divorcing and mm-hmm. the same, same crap like everybody else. Yeah. That brings up a good question. Do you think there's a, an ideal income, uh, annual income that is suitable or not suitable? Let's see. Um, that's just ideal for happiness. Cause obviously, you know, once you, once you make so much money, making more doesn't really bring any more happiness. It probably just brings you headaches. And there's lots of different theories out there on how much the ideal is 
to be happy and content. Do you have a, a figure in your mind? So the research says 75,000 a year. So 75,000 is across America. I think, mm-hmm. I think that's probably appropriate for the average. Mm-hmm. And I would say like for, you know, expensive cities like Paris, London, San Francisco, Manhattan, Vancouver, you know, I actually think that number is more like 200,000 per, pl- per person. And I do have a site, uh, sorry, a post that talks about um, a $200,000 budget for a family of four and how mm-hmm. quickly that goes, right. you know, because of our protect- progressive tax system, because of high housing costs, because of the cost of raising children, education, and so forth. But then, of course, when you go to Thailand and Southeast Asia, I mean, I think you can live great. I mean, I used to live in Malaysia. Mm-hmm. I think you can live awesome on 3000 US dollars a month, Yeah, for sure. So it's whatever you make it to be, and I think... What I, what I realized from making good money in 2012 to making like 80% less in 2013 mm-hmm. when I left my day job is that once you have all your basics covered, you don't really need much money at all. Mm-hmm. I was just as happy. I was, probably, I was actually more happy. I was afraid in the beginning for the, probably the first two months whether I made the right move or not. But I was so happy when I was making 80% less. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would wake up, same old house, right? Drink, drink my same old water my same old food because it's not that expensive to survive and then i would just go play tennis in the free public park with other you know tennis bums who are just hanging out and having a good time and you know the money i think i think the desire for money is more driven by what you see other people making mm-hmm. and what other people are showing you know on social media and all that and it frankly it's kind of annoying yeah and so i've taken kind of the, a different approach where it's, it's it's called stealth wealth where you know you want to be rich but you want to be stealth and you want to be rich just for yourself and your family and your friends and the things that you care about, not so you can show off. Right. And you are also when you when you had that that drop in pay, you are also trading, you know, you're trading income in a sense for lifestyle as well. So there was that there was that newfound lifestyle improvement that you were able to, you know, you could wake up and put a robe on instead of waking up and putting on a, on a suit and stressing through road rage on your way to work. Yeah, it's uh, there's a great saying. Um, Hell is other people. <laughs> and if you think about all the difficulties in your life, the stresses, it's because of other people, whether they stabbed you in the back or broke a promise mm-hmm. or betrayed you because they found someone better, you know? Mm-hmm. And then, of course, all the good things in your life is also due to other people. Um, but to be able to decide my own time, to do what I want to do, all anybody ever wants is the freedom to make their own choices. They can be bad or good, but because they were your own choices, whatever happens, I think people are satisfied with that. Mm-hmm. Good advice. I like it. So as you started growing the site, I imagine over the, the course of a few years, the, the income from the site started to tick up, the income from your other income stream started to tick up. Did you start reinvesting into additional, like start playing with new investments or did you kind of keep your, your same asset allocation model? Oh, I definitely uh, invested in different investments. Well, one, once you reach financial independence, whatever that definition is to you mm-hmm. or whatever that financial nut is to you, your number one goal is to protect your principal at all costs. Mm-hmm. And your number two goal is to not forget your number one goal. Because if you lose 50% on your financial independence nut, you need to get back to even. It'll take 100% to yeah. get back to even. And that's a disaster. Yeah. And like the larger your numbers, the more painful it will be, even though the percentages might be the same. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't really, I mean, we feel more pain when we lose than when we make, right? That's just kind of the way it is. And so I continue to be very conservative. And instead of trying to shoot for high single digit returns or double digit returns, I started to shoot for singles. In other words, 
maybe two times or three times the risk-free rate of return, which is simply a 10-year bond yield, mm -hmm. which simply is the money that's guaranteed you'll make if you hold on to it yeah. because the government is sovereign and won't go bankrupt, right? Which which kind of will lose against inflation, right? Yeah, I mean, so inflation times two to three times. Inflation times two or three. Mm -hmm. So as long as you can kind of beat inflation, which is like one and a half to two percent, mm -hmm. you're doing all right. So my, my goal was to make sure my investments were a tailwind and not a headwind. Mm -hmm. And um, what I found is that I actually do not like having too much of my money in the public stock market mm -hmm. and bond market because you are a minority investor, passive investor with no say on what's going on, right? So when Yahoo fires their CEO because he lied on his resume and he gets like a $50 million severance package, mm -hmm. you know, that's, that's, that's kind of crazy. And I don't want to invest in that. And there's like all these shenanigans that seem to happen in public companies all the time. What I actually wanted to do was asset allocate into private companies mm -hmm. or more things I had more control over. Because I believe that uh, nobody cares about your money more than you. Yeah. And so I looked at how like college endowments invest and other very wealthy people invest. And mm -hmm. they invest really for the long term where they lock their money up in private investments, private equity, venture debt, um, real estate, and so forth. Mm -hmm. And it does look like, you know, I'll tell you in 10 years, but so far so good, that uh, there's a better return if you can lock up your money for the long term. So all these private equity... Um, funds and all that stuff, they have like a seven to 10 year lockup. Uh -huh. And if you can lock it up for longer, your IRR, your internal rate of return, I think does better over the long term. Right. Yeah, I read on your blog so, that that, that endowment funds and high net worth people usually have between 10 and, and 30% of their gross wealth in real estate. Alternative. Uh, or, yeah. yeah, 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 real estate. And where, where do you lie with that stuff in your, like your overall portfolio with real estate? So... I would say, you know, depending on you, how you value my media company, mm -hmm. I would say my real estate as a percentage of my portfolio is about 35, 30 to 40% okay. of my network. Um, and it's kind of skewed because I bought a fixer in 2014 in San Francisco when I decided I didn't want to buy in Hawaii mm -hmm. because of the income income risk. Mm -hmm. um, so it's about 30 to 40%. Alternatives is somewhere around 10 to 20%. Mm -hmm. You know, the biggest joy I have is actually locking my money away and, and having it compound in a way that I don't even have to think about it over a five to 10 year period. And the biggest money annoyance I have is buying something and watching the daily ticker and seeing <laughs> bad things happen because of things I don't agree with. Yeah. Yeah. And that's just so annoying. So I try not to look. Going away for the emotion or taking a ride on the emotional roller coaster of the stock market. Yeah. So then public equities is, you know, like it's only about. I would say twenty to twenty-five percent of my mm -hmm. net worth, right? And, and then about um, yeah, go ahead. Five ten percent is risk-free. Risk-free. What was the? What's an example of something that you you were just mentioning? You lock away money for five to ten five to ten years, compounding. What's an example of something like that that you've invested in? Um, yeah, sure. One, I invested in a venture debt venture debt fund, which has a five to seven year. Expiration and what what's the, what exactly and does so, venture debt mean? So venture debt is let's say so you basically lend money mm -hmm. to companies, usually private companies that have already raised equity rounds from really great VCs. Uh -huh. So your idea is to go in and out. You know, you lend money at as high a rate of a possible. You know, maybe it's like twelve to sixteen percent, maybe it's twelve to twenty percent. I don't know. And mm -hmm. and the duration is for one to three years. Mm -hmm. And basically, you do due diligence on the companies 
revenue and balance sheet and all that. So you have with great confidence that they can return that money back to you. Mm -hmm. And then you just get out. So you're not waiting for like the massive equity payout where it becomes a 10 hundred bagger, you know, yeah. you're just trying to get in there and make sure the company is able to survive long enough, you know, over a one, three period, one to three year period. So you can get your money back. So it's, it's not exactly like a convertible. It's not like a convertible loan or convertible debt or even like a bridge. No, loan. It it's just like, it's just straight up debt to the company with, yeah, it can be like a bridge loan for mm -hmm. one to three years, but okay. because bridge loans are generally like one to two months mm -hmm. or much shorter. But yeah, so that's, that's something that's going to have a seven year life. Um, I invested in a real estate crowdsourcing investment in, of all places, Conshohocken, Pennsylvania recently. <laughs> right. And because I think Con, Conchi, Pennsylvania, based on my due diligence and asking like, you know, publishing a post and asking people from around there, what are their thoughts? I don't know, based on my research, that's a growing place. And, you know, it's a commercial real estate property that's going to be redeveloped and they're going to try to get more tenants. So mm -hmm. that's a five-year investment. So, yeah, I really like locking that stuff away, because money away, because it forces you to try to make better investments and mm -hmm. it forces you to hustle to not take the money you have for granted. Mm -hmm. So if you lock all that money away, you're more motivated to work hard and try to find other ways to make money. Yeah, I like that. Do you, have you taken a look at any of the new like crowdfunding for real estate platforms? I think like we had Fundrise uh, on the show recently, yeah. and then there's Reality Mo, uh, Reality, Reality Share or Realty, Realty Shares. Share. Yeah, right. So that that was that was the investment through Realty Shares was the Contra Hawken oh, okay. commercial right. property. Cool. Yeah, it's a real estate crowdsourcing. Yeah, I, I'm a big I'm a big fan of those things. They're uh, the Fundrise. Uh, Johnny and I both invested money, and it's like basically like a REIT. Uh, I know Realty Shares is slightly different because you're actually selecting a property, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But yeah, REITs. Any investment that produces yield in this low interest rate environment mm -hmm. has been bid up and has attracted a lot of dollars. If you look at REITs, you look at bonds, you look at uh, rental properties, physical rental properties, they've all commanded premiums because, you know, the risk-free rate of return right now is like 1.7%. Mm -hmm. You know, nobody, nobody's getting any yields. Everybody's looking for yield. And I think that's going to that's gonna continue to happen, that trend, I think, for the rest of our working lifetimes. I think interest rates going to stay low for at least mm -hmm. another decade, if not more. Because, well, one, if you look at uh, you know, where the 10-year bond yield was in 1985, it was like 16%, 17%. We've mm -hmm. gone straight down for 35 years in a row. I think that's partly due to understanding economic cycles better and also technology and communication. Yeah. And guys, uh, Sam blogs about a lot of this stuff. He includes a lot of charts and informative information in a lot of the articles you write. So please check that stuff out. Some great content in there. Uh, and Sam, I got to ask you, since you've been investing for so long, and especially even in, in public markets and have uh, a background in finance, what are your thoughts on new robo-advisories like Wealthfront and Betterment? I think they're a no-brainer. I think they're a no-brainer because the fee is so low. You know, for 25 base points or, you know, 0.25%, you can have your money managed for you in an asset allocation based on investment strategies by, uh, you know, Nobel laureates and whatever that the whole industry has used since 1950, mm -hmm. 1960. Um, the key for investing, as you know, is to continue for the long term, you know, continuously have discipline to invest every single two weeks or every single month, a certain amount, and hopefully it grows over time as your income grows in a proper asset allocation based off your risk tolerance for as long as possible. Because we know that stocks, you know, will return six to 8% annually over the long term. And we know that bonds 
return about half that. Mm-hmm. And robo advisors are filling a huge need. It's just people, the people I talk to, like the millennials I talk to, and and people who are in their forties. A lot of people have way more cash than uh, historically because of all these massive collections of volatility. So mm-hmm. I actually don't think that's that bad of a thing. Mm-hmm. But I think if you stretch that time period out over a twenty forty year period, um, you have you, you have to invest because of inflation and because of the opportunity cost of not investing. Uh, and so robo advisory advisors they lower the hurdle to transact, mm-hmm. and I think that's a great thing. You can just link up your checking account. You can sign up for free and play around with their models. I think I think it's going to be great. The only problem for them is that they don't make enough money to be operating profit positive, right? So you know if you manage one billion under management. Mm-hmm. I mean, that sounds like a lot, but that's tiny in the whole trillion dollar wealth management industry. Right. But if, even if you only, you know, charge what, 1%, you know, it's not a lot of money. Right. But it costs a lot to run these. And, and then the robo advisors are only taking like point, you know, and Betterment's taking like 0.15%, right? Yeah. It's like the max, the highest is 0.25% between those two. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it kind of goes lower and lower the more you have. So you really need tons and tons of assets under management. And that's going to uh, to get to profitability. So right now, it's all being subsidized by funding. Mm-hmm. And so the big question people have is, will the subsidies be enough for them to get to you know run on their own? And if not, like we saw in the fourth quarter of 2015, when private equity funding really dried up, mm-hmm. um, then all, all, all many of these companies are just going to go under or get taken under or just stop. Poof. So you know, as a consumer, yeah, we we want more funding to go to these guys to subsidize us. And then we'll join their platform, and then it'll be good for everybody because the guys who are charging one to three percent uh, will come down and come up with their own solutions for the better of everybody. Yeah, I agree totally. So we had John Stein, the Betterment CEO, on the show the other day, and and really like what he had to say. And I'm I've invested both in in Wealthfront and in Betterment, and love actually absolutely love both of them. And I think, like you said, the actual the other financial advisors out there, the more traditional ones, I think they really have to gonna have to innovate or come up with maybe even a, a robo advisory solution of their own um, that's gonna have to be much lower fee because I think I think the whole industry is changing very quickly and people are I mean the, the growth in robo advisors is is pretty amazing. I think both Wealthfront and Betterment are over five billion in in assets under management now. Um, it just makes sense. For, like you said, from a consumer level, I think it's great. And hopefully they're able to, to stay in business and continue to grow and we can all, all take advantage of it. So Sam, what else? Yeah, uh, I know we're coming up on an hour. I want to uh, be conscientious of your time, but I have a couple of questions about like, do you have a, um, do you have an investment that you particularly love? Like that you just like, not necessarily for the returns or for the safety, but you're just like, I just like this. I like being a part of it. It's interesting. You know, real estate used to be my favorite asset class to build wealth mm-hmm. because there is tangibility and utility in real estate. And the worst case is if it all goes to hell and you're living in your house, well, at least you have your memories. And, uh, <laughs> right. so real estate was number one, right? Yeah. Because like with stocks, you know, it goes up and then it goes down. And then you're like, well, crap, nothing really happened, right, if you don't sell. So I think the best home run is where you can invest in something and enjoy something Mm -hmm. at the same time. So that used to be number one. But recently, and I wrote in an article, real estate versus online income. Mm -hmm. I actually believe that the best investment is building your own platform online. You know, you have companies like LinkedIn, Google, Facebook, they've all become multi-billion dollar companies Mm -hmm. thanks to the internet. Mm -hmm. But the great irony is that most people don't brand themselves online, right? They don't Mm -hmm. get their name.com and brand themselves. They actually help 
LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, whatever, get bigger and wealthier and get more traffic by establishing their brand on their platform, right? right? And I'm telling my readers and anybody who wants to listen, they're already rich. They're already huge. If they're, you know, if they can do it, why don't you do it for yourself? So I firmly believe everybody should register their domain online or come up with some kind of catchy name that stands out and brand themselves mm-hmm. like today. You know, we all do this already in the digital nomad sphere, um, but I think more people need to do it. Own your brand because a lot of good things will come. If you think about your next investment, you know, let's say you invest $1,000 or $10,000 in your real estate or a stock or a bond, yeah, you might get, if you're lucky, two to two to 15% return mm-hmm. per year. But if you invest that $1,000 in starting a site or, you know, $500 in getting a designer to have a nicer banner or, you know, working on something to build a product, mm-hmm. man, you could build a huge return. Like two to 15% is like nothing. It's like, it's just not, you don't even want to bother. Yeah. The stuff that you do online can, can generate 100% annual returns, for example. So I think, more people need to think about that. Um, so I wrote the book, How to Engineer Layoff, Make a Small Fortune by Saying Goodbye, about severance and negotiations. You know, it's not a huge selling book, but it sells about $3,000 uh, of copies a month. And that took about six months of work, you know, three editors, 12 revisions, whatever. But after six months of work, just like focused work, mm-hmm. it's an annuity that pays 36000 a year. That's great. So how much capital, how much capital do you need to generate $36,000 a year? So you need like a million dollars in capital at a 3.6% rate of return to generate 36000 a yeah, year. Yeah, exactly. So what, what, what's, what's easier? I mean, spending six months working with a partner to invest in a, and create a product that mm-hmm. will generate something or try to save a million dollars right now. I mean, mm-hmm. I would say it's more fun and it's easier and it's more rewarding to try to build a product and, and brand yourself than to try to save a million dollars yourself. I like it. So, so I guess your, your favorite investment then would be anything that you've built yourself, right? Financial Samurai or the books anything, that you've written? Anything you build yourself online. Because we all know that there's over 3 billion people online. The scalability of the internet is, is more than, you know, your cupcake store on the side of the street that you got to pay $4,000 a month in rent to, right? Mm-hmm. The internet is just such a no-brainer. And I, I, I was, I'm disappointed that I didn't start in 2006 when my dad told me because I was too busy. <laughs> but better late than never, right? Thank goodness, you know, there's a huge financial crisis that made me question what I've been doing. And that's really it. It's like it always is like something mm-hmm. has to really change in your life for you to make take some action. And the statistics show, like, if you look at click-through rates or conversion rates and mm-hmm. all that, that 90 to 95% of people who read something that, that is logical, that encourages them to take action, that would be good for them, 90 to 95% of the people don't do anything. Yeah. And that's a, that's a shame. Yeah. Well, you'll be forgiven for not taking your father's technical advice in 2006, but definitely good that you got started <laughs> and, and gotten to where you're at. And, like how do you track all of your investments or even like your net wealth with having so many investments and all these different income streams coming in? Yeah. I mean, I used to just geek out on a spreadsheet and Mm -hmm. have a line item for every single investment. So now I just use personal capital um, to upload all my accounts and that are automated and update them manually as well for those that can't be linked automated Mm -hmm. onto an app. And then I just check, you know, once a month and see how things are going and you can scroll by assets, liabilities, specific asset classes and so forth. Um, I've, yeah, it's really complicated where there's, I have over, I have over 35, I think financial accounts, Mm -hmm. which, 
which is complicated mm-hmm. and actually it makes me think well maybe i should just simplify a little bit more um but that's, yeah. no, that's no fun <laughs> that's no fun to simplify <laughs> <laughs> But it, but it's simplified in terms of being automated using technology. Yeah, so I'm still using the Excel the Excel spreadsheet, which I update each month, and I've been looking for a better way to do that. So I'm definitely going to check that out. Was called what was it called? Personal Capital. Personal Capital, the app. It's free. Check it out. It's 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 a pretty slick and sweet device to manage your net worth and track your net worth, and also to see how you know your retirement future could be. So I think it's great. Mm, nice. It's kind of like Mint, but more investment focused. Good stuff. We'll definitely take a look. So that kind of brings us to the the summary. Like, how's how's retired life or the the semi retired life, and you know how it's taking you some time to get here, and now you know you're at a totally different place than you were when you had the full time job. Like, how do how do you spend your time, and how do you view kind of where you're at now? Mm. Uh, I recently wrote a post called "Life After Financial Independence." Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because it's been about five years since I left it, corporate America. And, and I realized several things. One, you know, like before you have, before you reach retirement or before you have your, your financial independence or whatever, there's this idealized notion of FU money, mm-hmm. where all you want is FU money so you can tell everybody who wronged you to F off. <laughs> and what I realized is that you actually don't care anymore once you have a few money or enough money to declare yourself financially independent. In fact, you start becoming more empathetic to other people's struggles and you want to just kind of uh, actually listen and, and, and help people more. So I think you be actually become a better person um, after, after you reach your goals because mm-hmm. you know we all have insecurities, we have, we're competitive, we see other people doing well and all that. And so early retirement is just a stage. It's just a chapter. It's like one stop. You think the the last chapter of your mystery novel is going to be amazing, Mm -hmm. but you realize after you finish reading it, oh, there's actually volume two, you know, volume two in the series. And then you look back and you say, oh, the whole struggle, the whole journey was actually the most fun. Mm -hmm. Because the worst case scenario for most of us living in a nice place is actually not that bad, right? We still have food, we still have water, we have internet, yeah. public libraries, whatever. So what I've, what I've realized as I approach 40 next year is um, you become a better person, you become more empathetic, you realize financial independence is just one stage, and you actually really just want to help other people achieve the same thing because you realize how awesome it is. You know, I don't want to be the annoying guy who writes on my site, look at my awesome life. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually just want to write about ways where you can achieve the lifestyle that you want. Mm -hmm. And I don't know the best way to do it, except for to write about things that'll help people save more, make more, and be happier. Uh, It's absolutely worth the sacrifices you make now. You know, the 5 a.m. wake-up call to work for two to three hours before you go to your day job. All that stuff is absolutely worth it. Uh, You know, I had a friend who I'd known for 10 years in my day job. He was 56 years old, and he was the mailman. And uh, two days before he got let go, he told me, you will regret more of the things you don't do than the things you try. Mm-hmm. And then he was gone. And I said, wow, thanks for the loyalty. You know, that's like bullshit. Like yeah. he's been here for 10 years and he got laid off. That's crap. Yeah. So I just want to try and do the things I want and kind of look back and not have any regret and be able to write things that will perpetually help people get to where they want to go. And I, th- I think it's going to be perpetual because whatever you write on the internet is going to live on forever, right? So 
Yeah. That's and, basically my goal. And I mean, your, your blog talks about so much of this stuff in detail and a lot about smart, practical steps and being responsible, which I, which I really like. And I think it can apply to anybody. And there's still a lot of people that even though you can read it and say, this all makes sense, there's people that just won't apply it. And I think it's really important. And you mentioned it earlier about, you know, 99% of people will read something that, that they agree with and it makes sense, but they just won't take action on it. And this stuff all just comes down to, to taking action and, and prioritizing it in your life. And I wanted to know, you know, again, all this stuff is on your blog, but we have a lot of young listeners, you know, early 20s, just starting out, have aspirations to, to kind of follow a path like you've, you've created in your life and just, you know, do you have any simple advice for people that are just starting out to kind of take the first steps in their financial independence? Yeah. So I like to tell everybody the amount of money you're saving each month doesn't hurt. You're not saving enough. You have to make it hurt. You have to, because once you know it's hurting, it's like kind of braces. If you've ever had braces, you know, when your teeth are like in so much pain, you know, it's working, you know, your teeth are going to be straight. So if you know that the amount of saving each month is a little painful, you've got to be cognizant of it, then I think that is only when you're really saving enough. Because what you want to do, if you're in your early 20s, you might be really optimistic and bright-eyed. You know, you just graduate from college or whatever, high school, and you're like, I'm going to work. And I love my job, and I love the mission, and I love the people. But what happens is that over time, maybe over 10 years, you will change the point where you'll be like, ah, you know what, this is kind of boring mm-hmm. now. And there's so many bad things that happen. You know, not, nobody's going to live the charmed, perfect life, right? So there's always going to be something bad that's going to happen, unfortunately. And by the 10-year mark or the 15 or 20-year mark, a lot of people just say, oh, I would like to do something else with my life, but crap, I can't because I don't have enough savings or I don't have enough passive income or I didn't brand myself online. What you want to do if you're a younger person is to be able to build that savings hoard, build your brand, build those passive incomes so you can have that option, to have the optionality to do whatever you want. That is like the key there. That really is the key to know and believe your elders that things get boring after a while and bad things happen and to be able to put the sacrifices now so that in 10 years when you're 30 or 35 or 40, Mm-hmm. You can make a change. It's the people who cannot make a change, who are very bitter, who are very unhappy, who hate life. And that's no fun. <laughs> Great practical advice. Really appreciate you sharing that. So guys, definitely, if you have not read the Financial Samurai blog, read Sam's book, also very highly recommended. We'll leave links to all this in the show notes. I just want to read out a few of my favorite of your blogs, the titles, How to Make Six Figures Income at Any Age, How to Retire Early and Never Work Again, Achieving Financial Freedom, One Income Stream at a Time. I had my girlfriend read a ton of these to me while we're driving through the Austrian Alps over the last couple of weeks. Love them all. <laughs> so um, thanks again for coming on the show, Sam. We really appreciate this. Um, and I know our listeners will enjoy the episode. We will leave links and everything in the show notes and um, we'll continue following you. Thanks for all the great content and uh, and again for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks, Sam. Man, that was a great episode. I learned a ton from, from Sam. I, that was, it was kind of very cool to kind of hear his story and how he went through from making, like, he didn't say exactly, but he kind of implied it was way over $200,000 a year to, mm-hmm. to quitting that or, or purposely getting laid off from that to start his own journey pretty much as just the financial samurai blogger. Yeah, yeah, I love it. Um, 
he's pretty open on his blog. If you guys want to take a look and see a little bit more about where he invests and the type of wealth he's been able to accumulate and put to work for him, uh, I would highly recommend it. I actually have four or five of his blogs open on my screen for my flight home to the US today. I'm going to catch up on. Uh, but yeah, that was an awesome episode, man. Um, I really like these stories, not just about full on investment strategy, which of course we did talk about that in that episode, but how he got to the point from being able to, you know, be in corporate America into being able to turn into a full time investor. And then what are like his favorite type of investments, right? Yeah. And I think like a couple of the golden nuggets I got of it. One was the fact that you'll never become truly rich just through passive income. Mm -hmm. And even though I love passive income, I, I know this is true because the best you can do is kind of just add like a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more uh, every single you know couple of months, mm-hmm. every, single, every single year. And it's really hard to become, to go from you know zero to becoming a multi-millionaire if you are just adding a couple hundred bucks, a couple thousand dollars in passive income every month. Right. It's, it's a great way to live an amazing nomadic lifestyle or even to you know be able to kind of retire young. But right. if you want to, if you want to make that big money, you have to take those big gambles. Yeah, I agree. And I think it is a good way. Like if you're getting started young, say you're in your 20s, even even in your teens, right? You start investing through one of these robo advisories and you're optimizing kind of around 8%. It is a good way to set up for retirement, but it's not a good way to retire by the time you're 30, right? Uh, and so that was a lot of what uh, what Sam's story was, was, you know, he learned a lot about investing when he was in corporate America, but he was able to parlay an early Early win in a, in, a, in a risky stock investment, which he made, you know, somewhere over a hundred thousand dollars. He's able to parlay that into a per, uh, acquiring a rental home, a rental house, or a property, and then it's been just been able to continue to continue to save and build and build off that. And you know, and then he was able to achieve a, a lot of financial freedom by the time he was thirty-four. Yeah, I personally wouldn't recommend anyone spend three grand on you know penny stocks that may go to zero or may mm-hmm. you know just end up losing money with a very very tiny chance of it you know growing to be worth as much as as it was for him uh, but at the same time I, I do agree that if you take a small portion of your earnings or your net wealth and then take a, a, a big bit of a gamble with it it's not the you know, worst thing in the world and it, if it does hit big that's kind of a new cash in mm-hmm. and what I liked even more is the fact that his second step was to take that money that he didn't really earn and put it towards an, an actual asset you can't, you know, that you're probably not going to lose, like his rental income, uh, versus having the mentality like, oh, well, I just you know made this money out of thin air. Let me just to try try to grow it again. Right. Yeah. And another thing that we we touched on in this episode, which he also goes into a lot of detail in his blog that I love, is frugality. And he talked a lot about how he lived very frugally. And of course, in your episode last week, Johnny, you talked about living off $600 a month. And for anyone who's listening to this show, who's trying to grow wealth uh, and trying to become more successful in their own right, frugality is so important, right? It's If you go out and buy that $80,000 sports car and you're going to blow you know, $2,500 a month on you know, a nice apartment for rent, it's going to be harder and harder to save that much money. So if you really take a look at your expenses and you look at, say, a five-year time frame and you can trim your expenses down, stop eating dinner out and buying $100 bottles of wine every night, don't rent that sports car, don't buy that sports car, learn to live a little bit more frugal, you're going to be able to save a lot more and put a lot more of your money to to work for you. Yeah, and I, and I definitely agree. I think part of it, maybe, and I don't think he even alluded to it, but I was, I was just reading a Forbes article that, that he wrote and he mentioned that he He's a Chinese-American who grew up in Malaysia, Taiwan, and Japan, the Philippines, and China. So I guess 
it, like just like me, I kind of grew up with that um, kind of. It's it's like innate in the Asian American culture mm-hmm. to be able to save and be a bit, be, you know, be a bit frugal, and I think that's helped both of us a ton. Versus you know maybe someone who kind of grew up thinking, oh, it's it's fine to buy a hundred dollar bottle of wine every weekend. Yeah, but also you know when we grew up, savings rates and banks were like five six percent. I can remember when I was just like twelve years old, and I would save money that I got from you know my my parents or whatever for a birthday, a hundred dollars here and doing little summer jobs, mowing the lawn and stuff here and there. And when you, every quarter you would get a statement from the bank, they would actually say you made, you know, $30 or something. And as like a 12 year old, that was amazing. So savings rates back in the day made it a little bit more appealing for youngsters to save, for anyone to save, but it, it helped instill those those types of values, right? Whereas now, like someone who's 15 and putting money in a savings account, they're not getting anything. In some countries, they might be actually losing money. So you have to be a lot more disciplined now and learn better ways to, to start off and um, and to be frugal, of course, as well. Yeah, and I think that, that's really good advice for people who want to, you know, to grow their bottom line, to, to, to grow their net worth. Uh, I think it's really cool that he drives a Honda Fit, uh, even though he can, you know, afford a much nicer car. Uh, right, he talks about right, it. Right. One of his, his articles is called Stealth Wealth, which I think is, is really mm-hmm. cool, you know. Um, I think it makes a lot of sense where if you want, you know, real genuine friends and you don't want people to mm-hmm. expect you to pay all the time, um, it's, you know, he, it, it is a good idea to kind of keep your, how much money you have kind of under the radar. I think me and you are a little bit, very, you know, a bit open. So I think people know um, how much <laughs> money we're making, but it's at the same time, it's like, I think if you're living in a city, like we're traveling so much, I don't, I don't think it really matters because uh, we're kind of running with, with a different crowd. But if you're like living mm-hmm. in a city and you have, you know, a house and you are meeting just very normal people that have a very normal job, you probably want to keep it under wraps. And I think by driving yeah. a Honda Fit is a, is a great idea. Yeah. Well, as they say, a dollar saved is a dollar earned. Yeah, actually, a dollar saved is a dollar and ten cents earned if you invest it correctly. If you if you put it in uh, wealth front and the market goes up, <laughs> that is true. So it's actually a really uh, good idea. Uh, so if you guys want to uh, check out Sam's book, uh, it is how to engineer how to engineer your layoff, and we'll we'll leave links to that in some of the blogs that we referenced, including the Stealth Wealth one in the show notes. So feel free to check that out and some reviews kick off. Yeah, uh, very very excited for our latest uh, review from Australia by Firebright. Uh, they said just <laughs> awesome. Five stars. I really love this podcast. It's just awesome. I've been following Johnny FD for a long time and I've read his books and also listened to the Travel Like a Boss podcast. It's just so inspiring to see, to hear all these investment tips and rags to riches stories. Love it. Keep up the good work, guys. Okay, I have one from my boy, Fergus Tonkin. And he said, learned more than I expected. Five stars. Great work from these two. I love how anyone can listen to these podcasts and pick up new things. I've listened to every episode up to episode 10 so far and plan to continue so guys thanks so much for the reviews honestly this is the best way for us to get better and better guests when we invite guests on the show the first thing they look at is how many reviews we have and what the reviews are 
and then they'll take a listen. So if you want us to continue getting better guests and bring you more and more information, please just take the uh, two or three minutes to leave us a couple or one one review would be great. <laughs> and uh, as a big thank you, we are continuing to give away $25 Amazon gift cards every single month for anyone who releases reviews and sends in a, a screenshot just so you know we have your email address so we know where to send the gift card. Uh, and this month, we are going to send it to Ferguson. Is that his name? Okay, Fergus Tonkin. Okay, yeah. Fergus Tonkin. And Fergus he, Tonkin. And you know what? And he sent in the most ghetto screenshot ever I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> Both Sam and I had to like zoom in 10x to try to figure out what Who this, was it? this said. <laughs> so we're gonna link link this this in the show notes so you can see you could take the most ghetto screenshot in the world and you could still win 25 bucks as long as you leave yeah. this review. So if he can do it, so can you. Yeah. Uh, Fergus, you gotta let us know what you're buying with a gift card though. You gotta make I it hope, something cool. Yeah, I, I hope it's a down payment to a screenshot software. <laughs> Screenshot software, yeah. No, it's okay. Buy something fun with it. Let us know what you bought. Um, You can even buy Johnny and I a gift and send it back to us if you want. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much. All right, guys. I'll see you all next week. Thanks for listening to the Best Like a Boss podcast. Join our mailing list at investlikeaboss.com to get exclusive access to our insider investment portfolios and our private members forum. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Tell your friends and leave us a review in the iTunes store. It helps more than you know. See you guys next week.